Well, good morning. Good morning. Today, welcome to our service for those who are on site and online. Uh, Today, we get to add another piece to this puzzle we've been building called our Blueprint to New Life with Jesus, which is essentially is a discipleship model we've been building over the last couple of weeks. And we're hoping that through this model, that that if you're at a point where you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, that, that you can find how to experience new life with Jesus. If you're at a point where perhaps you know that there's opportunity to have a deeper life with him, we're hoping you can find some, uh, some steps in this, as well as to offer you some training on how you, as, as, as a parent, as a grandparent, uh, as a person who's speaking into the life of another person, can lead others to experience new life with Christ as well. We started the first week by defining a disciple as a person who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and committed to the mission of Jesus. And while that provides a picture of what a disciple is, we then started talking about, well, how does that become reality? And we began that process by suggesting to you that it starts by sharing your life. By sharing your life in a way where, where you are inviting, just as you were once invited, you become an inviter as you invite others to follow Christ as you have. And this relates to that first part, that we are following Christ as an inviter, to reveal God's love by sharing our lives. The second part is that we connect in relationship. And I suggested to you last week that that relationships are the vehicle that God has designed for the discipleship journey, which starts to relate to the second part of that definition, that, that a disciple is being changed by Christ. As we come to know and grow in relationship with him and with his people. And so today we want to add one more piece to this, one more step to this. And it's a very important one. Because it takes the words that perhaps we learned as we share our relationship, as we grow in our relationship with Christ and others. It takes those words, those beliefs that we develop, and it puts them into action. And here's the importance of this. Imagine, for example, that I go to my daughter... And I say to her, go clean your room. And a few moments later, I I hear her walk past my office and go into her room. And so I give her some time to clean her room. But I think I I should probably go check on her and see how the progress is going. And so as I approach her door, and I'm about to knock on the door, but I can hear the words coming through the door already as I can hear her saying, go clean your room, go clean your room, go clean your room, go clean your room. So I knock on the door and I open it and and there she is in the middle of her messy room just saying, go clean your room, go clean your room. And I say, have you cleaned your room yet? Well, not yet, dad. You see, first I really wanted to make sure that I memorized what you told me to do. To which my response would be, clean your room. Close the door, give her some more time. Come back a little while later. I check in on how it's going, knock on the door, walk in. She's sitting at her desk with a pen and paper, writing down the words, go clean your room. I ask, have you cleaned your room yet? Not yet, Dad, but I'm getting closer. You see, I really want to understand what you meant by clean your room, so I'm parsing the verbs, and I'm breaking down the grammatical significance of that sentence, clean your room, to which my response is, clean your room. Now, frustrated, I I give it a day and decide to go check on her the next day and how that room is coming along. And I find that she's actually, instead of cleaning her room, invited friends over. And she's sitting in the living room with her friends and they're they're saying 
different things they can't make out. So I start walking towards it, and I oh, sh- they're praying. I'll just give them until they're done praying. When they say amen, I say, well, have you cleaned your room yet? Dad, we are so close. But we thought it would be good if we just invited some people over and we visioned what a clean room would look like. And then we started strategizing a clean room. And we thought before we do anything, we had better pray to make sure God is in this. All the while, the room never gets cleaned. (laughs) And as a parent, how do you feel? Well, on one hand, you, you probably feel happy because, uh, you know, memorizing and wanting to know and study and understand and pay attention to instructions is fantastic. But are you happy? No. Why? Because the room never actually got cleaned. You see, I think the same principle applies to discipleship. It is great. It is fantastic and critically important for us to grow in knowledge, to to have that relationship with Christ and his people where we know and grow and we develop beliefs and and understand how we can not just know beliefs but defend them. But we can talk about these things till we're blue in the face. There comes a time when we have to stop talking and start doing John talks about that in 1 John chapter 3.18 when he says, he says, folks, don't merely love each other with words. Let us show that love by truth and action. See, it's kind of the one-two punch of discipleship. It's this one-two punch where on one hand we got the words, on the other hand we got the action. On one hand we got the love and we've got the grace. We've got this one-two punch of discipleship. and We see this in multiple areas of life. For example, many of you probably have gone to high schools or know uh, children or grandchildren who have gone to high schools where they have a co-op program, right? Where you spend time in class and you study and you learn the theory, but then you go out and you apply it. You do it, and it's argued that that's the real classroom is when you go apply it. I have a son right now who's taking driver's ed. He spends 20 hours online in the classroom. It's really important. He hates it, but it's really important. What does he enjoy? Where does he develop? And what does he find fulfillment and joy in? The 10 hours he gets behind the wheel of that program. You see, there's a time for all disciples where we take what we've learned, where we take what we experience, and then we have to go forth and minister in the name of Jesus. And did you know that this is the basic model of how Jesus trained up his disciples And it's actually the model deployed by the early church on how they organized, structured themselves, and then went out and did ministry. Let's just take a second, look at Jesus' model, for example. If you are familiar with Jesus' life and ministry, even in the most basic sense, you, you probably know already that he primarily invested in a small group of guys who said yes to the invitation to follow him and were open to be changed by him. And in this small group of guys, we can see that there's like a, three, a three-step system he followed to train them up so that they could carry on his mission. And the first step was that he demonstrated ministry for them. This means that he, he taught them and he lived out kingdom values and priorities in front of them with them all around. He would gather them together and they, they would sit in circles and they would walk and talk along the road and he would read the scriptures to them and explain these scriptures. And while he was doing that, they would, they would listen, and they would question, and he would respond, and he would shape their thinking. 
They saw on these missionary journeys, on walks along the road to different places, that, that he had compassion and care for all people. That he would speak and heal those in the world that the rest of society had cast aside. You know, when you read the Gospels, it's amazing. Anytime somebody establishes an us versus them aspect of society, where does Jesus always end up? He's always with the them, with those that people cast aside. It doesn't matter if he was talking to a Pharisee, if he was talking to a tax collector, if he was talking to a rich man, he was always with the them that was cast aside to love and to care and to heal and minister to those people. The disciples saw Jesus demonstrate this. But then he also delegated ministry to them. Or he provided opportunities for them to assist him in his ministry. And at times even gave them ministry to do on their own. Matthew 10, for example, Jesus is about to send out the 12 disciples to, to go teach that the kingdom of heaven had come near and that the gates were open for all people who would place their trust in Jesus. He sent them out with authority to, to heal and to have authority over evil spirits. They're going to go have this adventure, this ministry themselves. They've seen him do it. Now they get to go do it. But first, in Matthew 10, but first, Jesus spends 40 verses coaching them. Before you go, here's what you got to know, what you got to watch out for, what you got to do, the do's and the don'ts. And then they stepped onto the field to experience ministry for themselves that he had delegated to them. But then we find Jesus would deliberate with them as well. He would correct their thinking, their attitudes. He would help them process what they had experienced. You see, there's this time and Jesus and his disciples are walking along the road and, and, and they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I, and I can't imagine how Jesus was feeling because just moments before this, he told them he was going to die. And their response is, well, who's going to be the greatest? After they walk for a while, they stop, and he, he sits them down, and he goes, what were you guys talking about? What were you, what were you arguing about on the road as we walked? And it is, he kind of knew, as they admitted it, he then taught them. He taught them about humility, uh, about ethics of the kingdom of heaven, about how the first will be last and the last will be first. You see, the end result of the demonstration, the delegation, and the deliberation was that he called these men. He equipped them, and then he sent out capable disciples to continue on the mission that he started. And the same process is found in the early church. And the same process actually forms what I would consider to be my philosophy of ministry and how we strive to do things here at West Meadows. And it, Paul summarizes it for us in, in Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 11 and 12, when he says, Now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church, the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. He's saying these are, are some leadership roles that people have been called to. And they are a gift to the church. Why are they a gift to the church? Because they have a very specific responsibility. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his good works, and to build up the church, which is the body of Christ. You see, leaders have a place and a role in the church. And the role is to demonstrate, to delegate, and to deliberate with the people of God, with all disciples that exist within the body of Christ. That means that everybody 
Everybody who is a follower of Christ has a role to play. Has a role to play as a minister. Somebody who ministers in Jesus' name. And the benefit of this is towards their own personal growth. As they take what they've learned, as they take what they've experienced, and they put it in action. And I can be confident of this. Is that if you are not learning and growing your relationship with Christ, then you are not spiritually growing. I'm also confident in this, that if you are learning but not applying, you're also stagnating your growth in Christ. Because it's part of the process. It's the one-two punch. We need to know, but we also need to apply and live out what we are learning, what we believe. And the other benefit of doing this is that it benefits those that we serve in the community. In the community, a worshiping community that we have amongst us here, but also the surrounding community as we are all brought into unity in the body of Christ. So what does this look like? Uh, you know, there, there's a couple of different accounts in Jesus' ministry where we can see what this looks like. And one that I want to walk through with you a bit today is, is found in John chapter 6. It's the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. This is, a, is an important miracle, an important story. It's, in fact, the only one that is found in all four Gospels which probably speaks to the significance of of how meaningful this was to those that Jesus was training up to go do good works for the unity in the advancement of the body of Christ. If you want to follow along as we walk through this story, I'll be looking at the version that we find in John chapter 6 today. But it is found in all the Gospels. You see, at this point in Jesus' ministry, the crowds were quickly becoming massive, unprecedented. There were huge, huge crowds all around him. But most of the people who were coming towards him were, were amazed because of the signs and the wonders, it says, that was drawing them towards Jesus. Signs and wonders, this, this means that they, they knew about the healings, they had experienced their needs being met, and they are just constantly thinking, what's next? And Jesus knows this, but he, he, he continues to care for them, to, to heal them, to, to meet their needs, to continue to teach them, and in the process of doing so, to invite them to become followers. And there are those who said yes, also in this crowd. There are those who have said yes to the invitation of Jesus to become followers. And from that group of followers, he has already selected 12 specific men who become his apostles, his small group, that has special access to different training and teaching opportunities with him. You know, they'd often watched him minister in different ways in different places and, and then known that they would go sit down afterwards in one of those circles and they'd talk about it and debrief and, and learn what had taken place. This is sort of the ongoing teaching and, and demonstration of ministry they had access to with Jesus. And they were being changed. They were growing from this. And so they probably weren't that surprised this particular day and, and maybe even a little bit excited when Jesus took them up on a steep hill And he sat them down again. As he sat them down, he drew their attention to the thousands that were down below them. And he drew their attention to the hunger that was in the stomachs of the thousands that were down on the bottom of the plain from this hill. We're not sure yet if they also saw the hunger that was in their spirit. But Jesus did. You see, this idea of signs and wonders carries two meanings. One, there's a sensational aspect of, of, of wow, the healing just took place. But at the other side of that definition, 
Signs and wonders means Jesus did these things for a purpose. And, and one of the main purposes of the feeding of the 5,000 was that Jesus wanted to reveal to them that he was the bread from heaven. The bread that didn't just satisfy momentary physical hunger, but could satisfy spiritual hunger forever. So that was one of the main messages that Jesus wanted to convey through this miracle. But, but on another level, it was a training opportunity for his disciples as well. And so he drew their attention to these people who had a hunger in their stomachs and in their spirits. And he had that lesson in mind plus the lesson in mind for the disciples because this time he's going to move from demonstration to delegation. And we see this in John chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, where, where Jesus looked out and he saw a great crowd. And so he said to Philip, Philip, you're from this region. When I first met you, weren't we in this area, not too far from here? You kind of grew up here, didn't you? Well, then, where shall we go buy bread for all of these people to eat? He asked us only because he already had in mind what he was going to do. See, John offers that last little bit of commentary on this passage. Because he knows that Jesus had a plan for the food, but it wasn't just for the food. John's looking back upon this, offering the commentary, seeing this was hands-on training that we received one day. And Jesus addresses this question to Philip. But the challenge is offered to all the disciples. And so Jesus gets a variety of answers back. Philip is the first answer, and, and he responds by saying, Jesus, it would take more than half a year's wages for everyone to even have a bite. Philip is just overwhelmed by the size of the problem. And he knows that it is well beyond his ability to find a solution to this. Some other disciples who have sort of a similar understanding, similar view of the problem in front of them come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, just, just send the people away. Like, there's still time. Send them back home. Let them find food for themselves. Which is actually a form of saying, Jesus, it's not really my problem. They should have known better before they walked all this way for all this time with no food. They should have known better. Send them away. Let them solve their own problems. Well, Jesus isn't satisfied with either of these suggestions the disciples bring to him thus far. So he says to them, go out and take a collection. Let's go see what's available. Let's go see what we have on hand. And so the disciples go out, and, and they all return feeling somewhat defeated. Because the only person who found anything in all of these people was Andrew, who comes with a small boy, and he says, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But what he says next reveals his perspective. Because like Philip could have come back and said, here's a small boy with five loaves and two fish. What's next, Jesus? He doesn't. What he says next actually reveals the status of his heart and his faith as he simply says, but how far is that going to go amongst so many? But Jesus wanted them to know. We're going to try and fix that. <laughs> you want to know how far is this going to go in so many? So Jesus took that from them, and he asked them to go out and give them another task to do. He asked them to go out and have the people all get seated in groups of 50. Now, as they go out to do this task, it's no small feat, because all of the Gospels are very clear to emphasize that there was 5,000 men present. 
plus women and children. So there could have been up to 20,000 people who were gathered together. So some quick math for you. That means that each of the 12 disciples had to gather together 30 groups of 50 hangry people and get them to sit down. All the while wrestling with the thoughts that are probably going through their head at one mind saying, at one time thinking to themselves, what's the point? Why are we going to bother with this? Switch over now. What's the point? Why bother with this? This is a waste of time and energy. At the other hand, thinking at the same time, no, Jesus has a plan. I can't imagine what it is, but I have faith that he will do something. And when they get them all seated, they go back up to the hill where Jesus is. And Jesus takes the loaves. He gives thanks for them. He cuts them in some fashion and gives them to the disciples. He then takes the fish and he gives thanks for it. And he cuts it into pieces and gives it to the disciples. To whom he has delegated the job of distributing this food. Now I imagine as they send out, these are smart guys. I know I got one piece of fish, one piece of bread in my basket. This is going to be pretty quick. One person, two person, I'm done. But as they head out and the first person sticks in their hand, takes out the bread, takes out the fish. It goes to the next person expecting nothing. They take out the bread. They take out the fish. And the next person, one bread, one fish. Next person, one bread, one fish. It doesn't take long before John looks in his basket. And John realizes, why is there so much bread in my basket? Andrew, how's your inventory going? How much bread do you have? I'm fine, John. I'm not running low at all. Peter, how's yours? I got lots over here somehow. Matthew, Matthew, you can't tax them on that. It's a free will offering. Let them just have it. That's not in the pet. That's the New International Mark version. That's not in there. But they keep looking amazed as they hand this out. Now imagine the conversations they're having with these people as they are ministering in the name of Jesus. These people are saying, thank you. You guys are amazing. To which they respond saying, it's not us, it's him. We're just sharing God's love with you. Consider the impact that it's had upon the disciples as they ministered in the Jesus' name. They started off with these doubts in mind, but now they are excited to serve. They started off with low levels of faith, but now Jesus could ask them to do anything and they would believe it was possible. And they just can't wait to see what's next. And they work their way through the entire crowd until we're told that all had eaten and were satisfied. And when the serving was complete, Jesus moves to provide a final object lesson for them to ponder. You see, they have been overly concerned up to this point with their own efforts and with what they could see possible through their own abilities. And that led to the responses that they had. The initial response of, well, uh, just ignore the problem. We can't do anything about it. It led them to their response of despair over the limited resources they had. It led them to think that this is impossible. But Jesus wanted them to know that they were not ministering in their own name. But they had been sent to minister in the name of Jesus, and that makes all the difference. Because when God is in it, all things are possible. When God is in it, the seemingly sparse becomes abundant. And just to prove this, Jesus told them in verse 13 that once everybody had eaten their fill, 
that they are then to go out and pick up all of the pieces that nothing was to be wasted. And don't miss this. That means that from these small loaves and these small fish, people didn't just get a taste. Like Philip initially said, how are we going to give them even just a taste? That means that the miracle of Jesus to feed these people, the abundance that they received was so much that it was like going to a buffet where you go back time and time again to the point where your eyes are bigger than your stomach and there are leftovers on your plate. As the disciples sweep through again and pick up all the pieces left over from those who couldn't eat another bite. John 6, 13, so they gathered them all and they filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over from what had been eaten. See, the disciples were not wrong to think about money and and, and food. You know, there's wisdom. There's biblical wisdom to take inventory before we set on a big adventure. But here's the problem. Is that they had allowed their inventory to define what was possible. Rather than looking at what they had and thinking about what was the potential when placed into the hands of Jesus. See, Jesus simply asked them to bring to him what they had. And let him lead them from there. You see, our efforts are meaningful. Our efforts matter. But God is ultimately the one who is in control of the outcomes. Have you ever looked at yourself or thought to yourself, I just have too little. I have too little skill. I have too little talent. I I don't have enough resources, experience. I don't have enough knowledge. If you ever find yourself saying that, it sounds a lot like Philip. But how is this going to make a difference with so many? Instead of saying those things, what if we replace that by saying, I am enough? When I place what I have, when I place what I am as an offering in the hands of Jesus. You see, each and every single one of us was created by God and has been known by God. There has never been a day where God did not know you. And when you accept him, when you accept his invitation to come into relationship with him, by placing your faith in the work and in the person of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins that separates us from God, in that moment we begin to be changed by him, to be changed into his likeness, which means that we strive to start doing what he did. And we begin to find out that God has, has, has delegated and planned ministry for us to do in Jesus' name. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2.10 where he says, For you are God's handiwork. You are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You are God's handiwork. You are his masterpiece. That, that, That word literally means that which has been intentionally made. And there's a deeper meaning from that that we can take from that. That means if it was intentionally made, that there was a craftsman. And that craftsman was God. And that he intentionally crafted you, which means that he did not have any error in how he made you. Because God is perfect, and what he makes is made perfect to his will. What that means is that you are not a mistake. The way God made you is not a mistake. And I don't know who on site or online needs to hear that today, but you are not a mistake. You might make mistakes, 
but you were not created as a mistake, and you are certainly not defined as a mistake. You are crafted by God with skill, with intentionality, with a purpose, and for a purpose. And God planned well in advance, long ago, what he wanted you to do in life, and he incorporated that into how he made you. That's why you have unique gifts. It's why you have had unique experiences and passions. It's why you don't need to look to copy what somebody else is doing. He's uniquely equipped and created and blessed you for a wonderful plan that he has for your life. He has a unique plan for how you can live as a disciple of Jesus Christ and serve him in the world all around us. Because we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works to the glory of God. We were created to minister in the name of Jesus. That's what Jesus was talking about in one of the last things that he said to his disciples, which we read about in John 14, where it says in John 14, 12, he says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that my Father may be glorified in the Son. See, Jesus had demonstrated through word and through deed the works of God's kingdom. The disciples had, had heard. They had sat and listened to him teach in ways that enlightened and amazed. And we can see these same teachings in the scriptures that we read today. He invited them to respond just as we today are invited to respond to these teachings. They had seen Jesus perform miracles over, over things like, like weather and, and nature and, and the body. They had shown him have compassion to those who were the least of these. And here in Jesus' promise, he claims that those who believe in him will not be endowed with supernatural powers. That's not what this promise means when he says you'll do even greater things. It's not that we'll be endowed with supernatural powers. See, miracles still do happen today, I believe, but, but that's not what Jesus is speaking of here. God didn't sign a blank check of miraculous powers for his followers to go out and perform miracles in their own will. You see, I think the area in which the Christian can exceed Jesus is not in power, but in quantity and scope of ministry. We can do even greater things. Because, you see, Jesus' earthly ministry lasted three years. And it lasted for one region. At the end of those three years, he had a handful of followers. But these were a handful of followers that he had called, equipped, and sent, and trained up to go forward on the mission. He passed the torch to those disciples, and they continued to minister in his name. And that line reaches down through generations and through centuries to us to here today. Where we find ourselves in a spot where we can send missionaries around the globe to deliver the good news of Christ in word and deed. We can preach across the internet like never before. We can minister for a lifetime. And the result is that today is not just a handful of followers, but today there's over 2 billion people who profess the name of Jesus, many of whom are on mission for Jesus in new and wonderful ways. One of those new ways is through the example, the West Meadows at Home platform that we have. You see, we use something called Church Online as part of our West Meadows platform. That's what allows us to, to live stream. 
to, to send out these messages beyond the walls of the West Meadows Church. And this platform has been around since 2011. And this past week, we were notified by Church Online that since 2011, and if, you ever, if you're watching online right now, or if you've ever been online before, you know there's these different moments that come up where you can click to respond to Jesus. When an invitation to accept Christ comes up, you can click to raise your hand and say, yes, I say yes to that invitation. And we found out this week that since 2011, over a million people through Church Online have said yes to indicate they gave their life to Jesus Christ. Now, that's as fantastic as that is, wait for this next piece. Almost half of them happened during 2020. We think, yeah, let's just pause and clap for that for a moment. 2020 has been an awful year in a lot of ways. From, from, from our temporary worldly perspective, from a kingdom perspective, 2020 has seen hundreds of thousands upon thousands come into the kingdom of heaven. And here at West Meadows, we have a part in that. And our part in that is, is not in the hundreds of thousands, but I am just so thrilled that God has seen fit to use us in these last six months to have 30 people come to give their lives to Christ through the ministry of West Meadows at home. See, God is sending out the good news of Jesus Christ broader and in more powerful ways than ever before. The scope of our ministry, the quantity of our ministry is like never before. We will do even greater things. But consider this as well. You see, it is one thing to be able to provide food to fill a belly for a few hours, and that's something that we do on a regular basis through the food bank and through other ways. But it is another thing to be used by God to lead a person into a relationship with Jesus Christ to fill their life for eternity. It is one thing to teach and to care for crowds over three years over one region. It is another thing to serve Jesus for a lifetime in a variety of ways as he leads us. And that is the call that goes out to every single disciple, is that we first have eyes to see the needs that exist around us, and they are many. But then to have hearts that are moved to compassion that moves us to minister to meet those needs in Jesus' name. That is what it means. That is what Jesus did when he demonstrated, delegated, and deliberates with us to help us to change into his image to do the things that he did. And he said, if you do this in my name, meaning if you do the work that he did, the work according to his will that furthers the mission, the kingdom of God for which he came, that he will be there in power with us as we do that. And so just as we should never look at ourselves and think or about our possessions and think to ourselves, there is so little. So too, never let us look at the opportunities to minister before us and say it will not make a difference. Because you never know the power your ministry will make when you place your life, what you have in that opportunity, in the hands of Jesus, and allow him to work in power in those moments. You never know the difference it will make in the lives of others. You never know the difference it will make in your own life. As we continue to apply what we know and believe to grow in relationship with him and with others. Because we are sent to be ministers of Jesus Christ. And that is the name, the power, and the will in which all disciples minister. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray you would help us to have eyes to see this week. To see the big and the small ways in which we can, we can press in to reveal your love and your truth to people's lives. God, I pray that we would have hearts that are moved to compassion. I pray we would have courage to step out in faith, to minister in Jesus' name in all of the ways and all of the opportunities you will bring to us in these days ahead. 
Lord, help us to place our service into your hands as an offering. To do it according to your will. To do it according to your glory for the sake of your kingdom. God, we pray that this would make an eternal difference in the lives of those that we have opportunities to serve, whether it's through simply through a smile, through a kind word. Lord, I pray it would make an eternal difference for those who perhaps we move in a little closer to and, and, and offer compassion and care. Try to still the fear that exists within people's lives right now. God, may it make an eternal difference when we, we step forth and meet a tangible need in a person's life. God, may it make an eternal difference when we have the courage to step in and share the words of truth and grace and love of Jesus Christ to a person this week. That your kingdom and your glory would be known. That you would use these things to continue shaping us into the image of Jesus Christ. That you would use these things to build up your church, Lord. And that through all of this, that it would reveal your love to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.